welcome back to another Ghost Cult Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Keithy. Today's podcast is an interview between Duncan Evans and Carol Hodge. Carol's new album, Savage Purge, is out now. Check it out. Hello, you are listening to the Ghost Cult Magazine podcast. I'm Duncan Evans, and we've got special guest Carol Hodge on today. So, hi, Carol. How are you doing today? Hello there. I'm I'm good. I've I've got labyrinthitis, which means I have to pretty much fly down, otherwise I spin out. Like, oh no. <laughs> other than that, I'm all right. <laughs> that's good. That's good. So, well, I hope you feel better from that soon. Is that something that's uh, likely to sort of improve soon? Yeah. Well, I managed to get a GP appointment this morning. This this is like the most rock and roll thing I've ever talked about in a podcast. Obviously. Um, so yeah, I got, I got a GP appointment. Uh, I staggers my way there. It's it's basically like having a bottle of vodka during the day and then doing that thing where you you talk to yourself and you say, okay, just just act normal, just act cool, just walk in a straight line. It's basically doing that for like half an hour when I was walking to the doctors. Wow. It's horrible. It's just like feeling really drunk all the time. Um, but yeah, I've got I've got some tablets for it now, and hopefully within the next week or so. I shouldn't um, want to vomit every time I move my head, but it should be nice. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, I hope it does improve. And um, thank you for still coming on and doing the interview. That is, uh, that's brilliant. And that is rock and roll, you see. It's all right. I mean, I could do it. I could do it lying down, so it must be all right. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So let's get into talking about the music then. So um, the album, Savage Purge. So the first thing that kind of struck me about the album, listening to it, is that there's this honesty which seems to run through it. And so obviously we, we never know when, when we're listening to a songwriter how much of it is about their personal life or how much of it is kind of a story. But I sort of have the impression that a lot of this could have come right out of your diary, really. Um, am I right about that? And was that a conscious decision to be so honest? I, I think it's... Um, I think in order to, to write good songs you have to be honest and I think that the root of a good song has to come from some sort of authenticity some sort of genuine feeling or emotion or experience uh, and then it's a case of kind of whipping that nugget of uh, essence into shape and uh, you know finding the right turn of phrase or the the correct level of um, you know between being completely on the nose and completely ambiguous so that people can listen to it and feel some sort of connection to what you're saying. Um, but yeah, I, th I think um, there's, there's definitely a lot of grains of truth in there for sure. Yeah, no, cool. That, that comes across. Um, and as you said, the, the, the thing of people being able to connect to it, I think a lot of the themes that you touch on, they are quite universal. Um, you know, things like kind of loving yourself and maybe kind of pushing through um, when times are difficult and things like that. Um, so are those sort of themes about maybe overcoming negative situations or day-to-day -day frustrations um is that something that you you feel was a conscious um decision to make the album sort of about that that i guess that's how it comes across to me really that's that's maybe the overriding sense i get from it yeah i mean it's um it, it's it's an album about about struggles i think um, but I was very conscious to try and make it uplifting as well, because uh, no 
somebody wants to hear like a middle middle aged woman just moaning about everything, you know, it'd be a little bit of a, a disappointing listen if that was the uh, the only arc that was in there. So it's um, I've tried to yeah capture. I mean, there's various themes in there. You know, I talk about um, about alcoholism. I talk about um, you know domestic abuse, about mental health issues, about getting older, about self love. Um, so there's it's quite a sort of wide range of uh, topics, all of which are sort of important to me in one way or another. So hopefully there's something there that people can relate to, but not feel completely bummed out by by the end of the album. Yeah, no, I think that's, again, something that I think you did really well, was taking some of those themes, which I guess could be described as negative, but it is often very upbeat and very kind of gleeful, is I think a word I used in the review. Um, So... Yeah, so, so so how do you want people to feel, I, I suppose is a question, when they listen to the album? Do you want people to take kind of a sense of hope from it or what is it that you want people to take away from it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think just initially, just anything, if people engage with any of the songs emotionally on any level, then I'll have done my job very well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wanted it to be a bit of a journey that definitely ends with with hope and um maybe a little bit of resignation because i think that's part of getting older is just you know basically finding gratitude for your lot mm-hmm. and finding little things to appreciate in your own life without having this um you know big cloud hanging over you of regret or ambition even just just being happy and you know being able to see the wood for the trees, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. So what about the title then? So Savage Purge. So I, I don't think that's in the lyrics at all. Um, so where does that come from, the Savage Purge? Well, it, the idea of it, um, it sort of came from, there's, there's a Crass song. I've, I've done, um, I, I play in bands with Steve Ignorant, who is the, one of the founders of Crass. And uh, there's a Crass song called Shaved Women, and um, it, it's basically about the Epirochon Sauvage, which was at the end of World War II, in France in particular, a lot of women were persecuted um, for supposedly collaborating with the Nazis. And uh, they had their heads shaved, hence the song Shaved Women, and some of them were executed, and some of them were sort of you know beaten up and basically publicly humiliated. Um, and the more I read into this topic, because it wasn't—I'd never heard of it before—and um, you know, it's something that it escaped my, you know, historical lens. And um, it, it ultimately came down to basically quite a lot of really horrible, really unfair misogyny. And um, so that kind of struck a chord with me, and um, it, it just sort of seemed to fit. And I really—I mean, "Savage Purge" is not the exact translation into English but I just quite like the ring of that and I just thought oh that's kind of that sort of feeling of injustice and that sort of slight misogyny was something that was um you know recurring in my life quite a lot of the time and uh, yeah just it just felt like the right thing and it kind of like chimes you know um sonically savage purge it just sounded like quite a nice um, neat title 
Yeah, no, for sure. It works. And that, that gives me and the listeners something to look up as well, because I didn't know about that either. So I must do my research on that. Um, yeah, horrible topic, I guess, but very interesting and important. So yeah, no, thank you for elaborating on that. Um, okay, so so in terms of the music itself, um, I, I would say the album kind of resists classification. Um so, you know, it moves from like a full rock band sound. There's a bit of punk in there, maybe, you know, not not necessarily full blown punk. But um, I would say there's a bit of that sound in there. But then there's also quite stark piano arrangements. And there's even a kind of synth pop track as well. Um, so do you do you kind of worry about what genre you're working in and think about the style? Or is it just a case of whatever comes out, write it and arrange it just however fits the song and go with it yeah i mean that you know the latter basically that was that was my approach with this album um my previous solo album i was quite hung up on how i would play it live and so that restricted some of the arrangements um but this time i was i don't know i just thought no just just go for it um and just have fun with it um I was fortunate enough to work with Dave Draper again, the producer, and he does drums, bass, and guitar awesomely. So that was just a great, you know, he's just like a one-man band, so all the bits I couldn't do, uh, he could do them. So I had some ideas for guitarists and, you know, drum grooves and bass lines, and we sort of used those as a starting point. And, um, yeah, just had fun with it and brought it to life in... It's kind of weird, like, when you write a song, you often have an idea of how it's going to sound in your head, Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the you know the bigger sort of rock tracks in in there they sort of they definitely had a guitar line in them and there was a certain drum groove in them like as I was writing them you know the initial bones of them I could hear that arrangement there so I wanted to to honor what was going on in my head initially yeah no that's it's great and it's great to have that flexibility I guess um, and I suppose maybe the flexibility to be able to use um, a bigger lineup and different instrumentation but also the flexibility not to maybe because perhaps sometimes when people work with a full band they feel like they've got to use that full band on every song whereas you just really seem to have done what you want and, it, and it's great and, and I think it all still really does tie together because it's still you and you've still got your voice and the same sort of themes cropping up. Um, yeah, so so did did you worry about it being too eclectic or diverse or did was it just a case of, you know what, it d- doesn't matter, it's completely just what it is? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm a singer-songwriter and I'm, I'm quite happy to embrace that concept. Um and the benefit of that is I'm not I'm not tied to a genre. I'm not trying to be, um, you know, to fit into the rock world or the punk world or the pop world or whatever. I'm just um, writing what I want to write. You know, I'm 38. I'm not getting any younger. I don't have any big ambitions of, uh, you know, achieving grandiosity as a rock star. I just want to write songs that are they're the best songs I can write that mean a lot to me and uh, produce them you know, onto albums that sound as good as it possibly can. Yeah, and fantastic. Um, okay, so when I was doing my research, um, I noticed that you describe yourself as a seven-fingered pianist. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, um, I've got seven fingers and I play piano. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty much the long and short of it. Um, yeah, I was born with um, a condition called uh, cleft-type symbrachidactyly. 
which basically means that um, when I was born, my left hand had two fingers instead of five. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, you know, when it came to me deciding what I wanted to do with my life, I wanted to play piano, you know, instead of doing something that maybe didn't necessitate having 10 <laughs> fingers. But, you know, I um, I think that's kind of <laughs> a big part of my personality really is like, you know, being told, well, you won't be able to do this. And I'll be like, OK, well, let, me, let me prove you wrong then. Um, so, yeah, you know, I found a way around it and uh, sort of developed my own style of playing, I guess. I always think of myself as a rhythm pianist. You know, the bands that are playing, I'm not, I'm not trying to steal focus. I'm trying to sort of flesh out the sound, kind of like a rhythm guitar, adding, adding to a wall of sound is what I like to do on the piano. Yeah, absolutely. Now that makes a lot of sense. And I guess there's, you know, there's a long history um, of, of musicians and other people who have sort of, you know, I guess works in a similar sort of way. I mean, you know, Django Reinhardt, um, obviously famous jazz guitarist um, who I'm not quite sure how many fingers he had, but he didn't have 10 fingers. Let's put it that way. Um, so, yeah, I, I, absolutely great. Um, and, and that whole idea of overcoming things, I guess, maybe ties in with some of the lyrical themes a little bit um, that you've talked about. Um, okay, then. So this whole thing of punk, which we've which we've touched on then, because obviously, you know, you've worked with Steve Ignorant um, and you, you've guested with Ginger Wildheart. Um, so you know, you, I guess you're kind of involved in a, in a scene that you might call the punk scene. Um, so what does punk mean to you? Does it, do, do you consider yourself a punk? Do, does it matter? Do you care about these classifications? Is, is, is punk important or are these just words that don't mean anything? I mean, I mean, I think it's one of those debates that's raged on for 40 years, isn't it, really, of deciding what punk is and people being punker than now. Um I mean, obviously, it's tied to a genre of music and a scene. And I think that at the heart of that scene is that everybody's welcome um, and everybody's everyone can have a go and everyone can have a chance to play, um, which I think is brilliant. Um, but it's also, it's, it's definitely an ethos. It's definitely a personal political view, I think. Um, and it's to do with... Um, yeah, I guess, I guess, I mean, I mean, crass were all about um, anarchism um, and, you know, being an anarchist, which essentially means think for yourself and, you know, their, their phrases, there is no authority but yourself. So it's like, you know, make your own mind up, decide what you want to do with your life and stick by that, you know, decide what your moral compass, where it's going to point and, uh, you know, and be, be true to that. Um, and I think that's more important than, you know, how how many chords you have in your songs or, uh, you know, whether you've got the right clothes or the right hairstyle. Yeah, no, I think that that's, uh, makes a really good point. Um, and I guess Crass were an example of, uh, of a band maybe who, who sort of subverted punk perhaps, you know, because um, I guess like, like you've kind of alluded to, the, the, the sort of punk ethos, I, I suppose, a lot of people would say it's meant to be about freedom, but then it kind of quite quickly became a genre that was maybe quite constricting. And I guess Crass were a band that, that didn't really adhere to those um, boundaries. And um, I know obviously, um, what Steve's gone off and done is not necessarily um, that doesn't sound the same as what he did in Crass necessarily. Um, so so yeah, it, it, it's great. I, th- I think that that punk ethos. I, d- I do kind of feel that listening to your music. I mean, um, it's 
quite accessible in many ways. Um, but I would say you, you can hear the kind of ethos that you've talked about, about sort of personal empowerment and that type of thing, um, and about doing it in your own way. You can hear that and feel that in, in the music. Um, and, and I guess that does tie back to back to punk. Um, so w- would you say, like, are you still quite connected to the kind of punk scene and would you, would you consider like um the sort of gigs that you want to do and things like that do you do you tend to work within the punk scene or, or do you just not care just do whatever for for everybody who's listening i mean in terms of um the venues and you know the kind of circuit that i play on because i've been essentially been in punk bands for 20 odd years that's kind of what i know so it's you know it's the promoters that I know, it's the venues that I know, it's the the bands that I know, and um, so yeah, even I found myself playing some quite interesting gigs as a solo artist. Um, I, I got asked to play with um, Dirtbox Disco. They were oh, yeah. playing, they were filming their um, live DVD, and uh, for some reason they wanted me to open up for them. I was like, all right, great. So it's just me and a piano um, to a load of punks in a, in a sort of sold out star and garter in manchester and then uh, and then they played so it was like i, I quite like that I quite, i'm up for anything really you know i quite like playing to uh unusual crowds and uh i like the challenge of trying to find a connection with people even if they, they take a look at me and they think oh i'm not gonna have anything she's not gonna do anything i'm gonna like you know i like trying to prove people wrong yeah and did you win them over at that gig yeah totally i was <laughs> i was very pleasantly surprised because I, I was kind of up for it, you know, it being like a, uh, as I am with any gig, I, I kind of, because I've been playing so long um, and I'm very self-deprecating, I, I kind of find it quite funny if a crowd is just not not interested or just dislikes what I'm doing. I, that kind of spurs me on a bit more and makes me makes me enjoy the, uh, the kind of masochism of the situation as well. So either way, it would have been fun. <laughs> it's good to be able to take it in that way. Um, yeah, it, 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 I always watch audiences. Um, I try and watch audiences almost as much as I watch the bands. Um, and it's interesting how different audiences respond to support acts who are a bit different. Um, you know, I remember seeing Grinderman probably 10 years ago, in Nick Cave's band that was a bit more punk. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the support act, I can't remember the name of the band, but they were really cool. And they did this experimental, almost performance art type of thing and they got like a saxophone and dismantled it and made weird noises with it and I thought it was really cool but I was amazed that a large proportion of the audience sort of reacted with almost like anger like they they couldn't believe that this was there but I just and and the band soldiered through and they they did great and they were quite it seemed to give them more energy and it it was great to see that kind of like defiance like you know just we're still going to do this and we're going to make it even more weird and but yeah it's it's, it's strange but sometimes it goes the other way and 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 it's great when um when people do see something and hear something that perhaps they didn't expect but actually it does connect and that's I think that's really nice nice um yeah isn't isn't it funny though how you know so someone like nick cave um you know he he's he's taken his fans on a journey over the years it's not like everything he's done has been middle of the road by any stretch of the imagination but some crowds just seem to be very um almost kind of tribal or almost sort of like it's almost like a battle of the bands mentality. It's like, well, we've come to watch our band. We're going to stand there with our arms folded or leave the room when the other bands are on. It just just seems really silly when you, you couldn't, you know, discover something new and have a really good night. 
Absolutely, yeah, and it all—it's um, all part of life's rich tapestry, isn't it? Really, it is what I think, and and I do think, um, yeah. The, the worst thing is if, if people stand there and sort of start shouting abuse or something. I think at least at least go and go to the bar. Go, do you know what I mean? If you really don't like it, at least don't stand there and um, ruin it for the rest of us. But but there you go. But um, but but it's interesting to, to to observe how how people work, and, and I suppose um, you know if you're involved in the world of music and art, and I guess you you exposed to a lot of different things and hopefully quite open-minded and not everybody is so I guess you've just you just got to roll with it sometimes I suppose yeah yeah absolutely and I, th- I think it shows it shows the audience members true colors as well it shows whether they're a genuine music fan who understands that bands have to start somewhere and that involves supporting other bands um you know you, you know just get dropped onto a stage in front of 10,000 people that know your music and love your music um it takes time to sort of build an audience and um yeah i guess there's a lot of what what you call maybe like uh, weekend gig goers uh you know people who, who don't really know that much about music but have heard or maybe this band's worth going to see at the arena and they'll buy a ticket and they'll go along and you know maybe not really engage on it engage with the music on a, a deep level or whatever but um you know just just kind of be there just to fill the audience out almost. Yeah, no, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, then. So obviously, you've you, you've said and, and we've said you you know you've collaborated a lot with different people. You've been in a lot of different bands. You've worked a lot with Steve Ignorant, um, guested with Ginger Wildheart. I mentioned. Um, so how does doing your own solo work differ from collaborating? And I guess what are the what are the sort of positives or, or benefits of doing each thing, either collaborating or just working completely um, yourself? Well, I kind of, um, in a lot of ways, I prefer collaborating because it, it's a lot easier. <laughs> it's a lot less hassle. I'm just told to be at, to, to learn the songs, be at this place for rehearsal, be at this place for gigs or whatever, and it's it's great. You know, someone else does all the work with, um, you know, not so much writing the songs because that's the fun bit, um, but someone else does all the work with the planning and the booking things and the sorting out the finances and everything and I just have to do the music which is you know the other fun part the playing live um well I guess doing my own stuff especially playing solo it's um it's a you it's a different experience I think it's a good one to have if you're a musician who's been playing in bands for 20 years to then actually just do stuff on your own you do learn a lot and you do have to um up your game because it's just you and there's nowhere to hide um and you know you you, you die you die die by your own sword or uh, there's some stuff phrase I can't remember what it is yeah I think, um, I think that's right yeah <laughs> well, um you know and so that so that's a, a double edged sword I'm gonna stay with the, the sword um, metaphor for now because um, obviously you know that feeling of somebody in the crowd well or, or the twenty people if come and say yeah, let's let's not uh, be too hyperbolic. Um, <laughs> might know the words to a song and sing sing along to them like that's pretty magical it's like oh, i wrote that song and they know it and they're singing along because they like it it's like that's that's pretty special especially when it's you know it's just you and them and that connection is very different to playing in a band so it sort of feels different do you think it's almost like a bit more intense in both ways like if it doesn't go well you maybe take it to heart more or if it if someone really does connect with it that perhaps lifts you even more when it's your own thing 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, do you know what? It's harder to fall um, to fall apart when it's just you on your own. This is one of the things that actually surprised me. I don't know if it's because because um, people feel sorry for me or because this is just a <laughs> genuine dynamic that happens in solo gigs. But even if I've like really messed something up, which has happened once or twice, uh, and I felt, oh gosh, this is this is going to go to pieces. I've always felt like the crowd were on my side and they're rooting for me, which is a really nice sensation. So, yeah, I think um, it's made me realise that, you know, nine times out of ten, a crowd is on your side and they do want you to do well because they want to enjoy themselves. They don't want to see you fail. They want to, you know, to see you win. Yeah, and I think also sometimes those moments are nice for audiences, you know, because at the end of the day, if if people were just going to hear exactly what was on the record, they could just listen to the record. And I think people want a, a special, um, unique individual experience live. And I think sometimes the mess ups are part of that. You know, I, I remember seeing Christy Moore and he just completely messed up a song, um, you know, but it was, it was fine. It was, it was quite nice. It just felt like we, it reminded you that we were all in the same room and we were all sort of, participants if you like um so yeah so, so i suppose <laughs> when you're playing a show how how do you feel about that that sense of sort of community like do, do you do you like to make every show kind of different so it's like just you in the audience and um you're doing something special that's a one-off or do you try and sort of create a consistent experience which is sort of the same night after night so there's a certain level of of, of quality or standard there which one do you kind of lean towards that's that's a really good question and to be honest, I'd be lying if I said if I said one or the other, and that it was a you know predetermined uh, route that I was treading. I think it's uh, it's it's very much suck it and see. Um, but uh, again, I quite like that. I like trying to read an audience and see you know okay, is this is this joke going to land? Are they going to like this bit of banter? Should I try and be a bit more serious? Um, oh gosh, the, the mood's gone right down. I better bring that more upbeat song in early. You know, it's, it's very much a responsive um, experience. Um, with, with when it's just me and a piano, and I'm I'm doing my solo stuff, I kind of try and read the room a lot more. It's a lot more apparent um, when it's quite a bit quieter and it's an acoustic um, gig. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And do you improvise at all? Because I guess if it's just you, you've got the flexibility to kind of string out a bit of an instrumental section or to, I don't know, even cut a verse if you just want to make the song, the song short or something. Do, do you kind of play about with the structures of the songs or do you keep it fairly rigid? I occasionally improvise when I hit a wrong chord and then style it out and repeat the wrong chord so it looks deliberate. But um, other than that, um, no, I don't really. I'm, I'm kind of, um, yeah, pretty much stick to the structure. I might, I've, if I've got a solo in a song, I usually improvise a piano solo. Um, yeah. But other than that, I try to stick to the structure unless things go wrong, in which case I just kind of roll with it and try and co cover it up Let's whilst cackling it. to myself usually. <laughs> it's a good way to be, yeah. 
All right, so I guess the, the talk of gigs and concerts and shows and tours and all that kind of leads us on to the inevitable question about the current situation um, that we all know about and have probably heard far too much about in some ways. But the whole COVID lockdown thing. So how has this experience that we're all still going through affected you sort of both creatively and in terms of, you know, your, your work, you know, obviously there's no concerts and things at the moment. Um, so yeah, how's the experience affected you in those ways? Well, I was supposed to have done, um, like a few, a few solo gigs, um, with, with my new band actually in, uh, in March, April, Supposed to have toured the Crass songs all around the UK in April. We were supposed to be Glastonbury with the Crass songs as well. Oh, wow. um, Rebellion. Um, meant to be doing a European tour in September. So it's all been, you know, this was meant to be the big year where we did all the Crass stuff. And, you know, it was a big uh, celebration of the music for Steve. And um, that's not happened. Um, but I think we're... Every, every musician I know is pretty much of the same mentality that it's it's just not going to work until things are more back to normal. And because you can't run small venues at you know social distance capacity because it's just not going to work um, on any level, on a financial level or on a um, experience level for the performers or the crowd. Um, <sighs> Yeah, I think sadly that's probably right. And I know in the US they have sort of opened up some venues, but also I know, for example, in Texas they've just closed bars again and things. So, yeah, I think we've got to accept there's not really going to be shows um, as we know them for the, for the time being. Um, but have you been doing other things? And Have you been creating new music, sort of writing new stuff, or maybe doing you know live stream shows and things like that? Yeah, I've been quite pleasantly surprised. Um, I basically decided at the beginning, so I'm sure you remember this, at the beginning of lockdown, um, you know, every every man and his dog was like, acoustic, I'm going to do an acoustic gig online now. And like literally my whole Facebook feed was to, to, you know, reiterate a stereotype filled with men with acoustic guitars it really was it was like everyone I knew who's a musician and a male and a guitar player they were on there and they were playing all these gigs and I was like well I'm not gonna bother I'm just gonna wait and if anyone asks me to do one you know like a promoter or a charity or anything like that then I'll do it so I've ended up doing quite a few which have been to you know support different uh causes different venues um and uh, I've collaborated on on a few songs as well which has been really nice um brilliant what else have I done I wrote one song I've literally finished one song which is terrible um and released that as a single and um yeah I've just been sort of rehearsing my set and my day job is uh, teaching music online so I've been very busy with that because I've had a lot more students come on board with you know people being stuck at home and not able to go to school Right. Wow. That's no. But my, as it happens, my day job is teaching music in a school. So, so there we go. So, <laughs> but that's good that you've been getting the work in and and, do, and doing that. Um, so, do you have plans for like like the tours and things that you've talked about? Um, have they been rescheduled for sort of twenty twenty one, or are you just waiting and seeing what happens? Yeah. At the, at the moment, there's a um, there's a, there's a plan. There's a plan A, there's a plan B, and I think we're, we're sort of figuring out plan C at the moment. Um, and I think it's been a case with a lot of bands who've sort of rescheduled for 
later in the year, you know, for October, September, October, and then people are realizing we're probably going to have to shift them to 2021. So I think there's this whole big dance going on with um, with bands and venues at the moment. And then, of course, a lot of small venues will, they don't even know if they're going to be able to weather the storm. Um, you know, who knows what's, what's going to be left when it comes to 2021, which is a really horrible thought. Yeah, it's it's really difficult for small venues, isn't it? Um, yeah, and theatre and, and everything. Um, so yeah, I mean, so so you mentioned that you've you've been involved in some um, maybe live stream shows and things to support venues. Um, so is is there anything that people can do? Are there any charities that you're sort of aware of, or particular venues that you think need some help? Where there's maybe a fund that we can get involved in, or anything like that? Or yeah, good question. Um, I mean, just sort of off the top of my head, um, I mean, with Steve with Slice of Life, we um, did a, a live album, the proceeds of which are going to Ramsgate Music Hall, uh, mm-hmm. which is one of the best sort of uh, independent venues in the country, in my opinion. They have really good coffee backstage, which I can't tell you as a as a teetotaler, that makes all the difference for me. Um, <laughs> and then... I really like the uh, the Salty Dog in uh, Northwich um, and uh, obviously the parish in Huddersfield, which is kind of my uh, my local. Um, yeah. But there's tons, aren't there? You know, there's so many I can think of. Uh, Bannermans in Edinburgh. Um, where else? Quite a few nice little ones in Brighton. Places in Norwich. Obviously, loads of places in Manchester. Starringart, the Pier Hat, Gulliver's, the Eagle. Um, yeah, there's tons of small venues that are just, you know, just get get online support. Everybody supported the local ones, you know. I think that's that's the way forward. Yeah. So if you're not sure, find out your local live music venue, independent live music venue, and just see what you can do to help them. See what they if they're asking for help, then um, you know, do it. <laughs> Yeah, totally, totally. Because uh, yeah, they need all, all the help they can get at the moment, and hopefully they'll, hopefully they will weather the storm, and we will have uh, venues and and shows and gigs again. Um, yeah, so just more generally, then, just thinking beyond COVID into kind of general plans for the future. So, what are the plans? Do you have plans for for more solo albums, for more collaboration records, things like that, or? Just yeah, uh, I don't know really. Um, it's it's kind of I'm not um, I'm not the kind of person who has a five year plan and a very determined um, you know vision and and yeah step by step thing to follow and because because I know music the world of music doesn't work like that. I think it's all very much like I'm quite happy to get blown in different directions and into the paths of different people and like I say I've, I let go quite a long time ago with this idea of you know trying to make it and trying to be be a big somebody and now I'm kind of more about oh I'll do that because it's interesting or I quite like that person I wonder if they want to do something together or um I like being asked to do things you know that's that's kind of how a lot of these things come about it's someone else has an idea and for whatever reason, I'm on the radar and I get asked to do things. So that's, um, I'm very grateful for those opportunities. So yeah, just whatever, really, whatever blows my way. 
Yeah, no, fantastic. Okay, so now that's been absolutely brilliant, um, and I think we'll we'll wrap it up shortly. Um, but just before we do, um, how can listeners hear and buy the album? Because I believe it has um, come out a couple of days ago. Is that right? Or was it yesterday? Even. Yeah, it was the uh, Tuesday the 30th of June. Um, I don't even know why I chose that day. It was really arbitrary. Um, it was meant to be in March, but obviously with the whole lockdown, I wanted to um, knock it back a bit and see if I could have a chance to tour it. But but hey, um, yeah, so it's, it's everywhere now. It's on like, you know, Spotify, YouTube, wherever people normally stream things or download things. It's on Bandcamp. And um, I have about 80 copies of the... Um, the heavyweight heavyweight red vinyl left, uh, which is a really beautiful uh, piece of kit, um, and I also have it on CD, and uh, that's for sale on Bandcamp. Um, Carol X Hodge, and also on my website carolhodge.co.uk, and it's Carol without any. <sighs> Absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you so much for chatting to us. That's been brilliant. Um, yeah, and all the best for the future and for uh, for post-lockdown life and for uh, more collaborations and more brilliant music. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, you too. So you've been listening to the Ghost Cult Podcast. I'm Duncan Evans, and we've had special guest Carol Hodge on. Thank you for listening. Thanks for checking out today's podcast. Follow, like, and subscribe wherever you hear these podcasts. Also check out Ghost Cult Magazine on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And finally, check us out at ghostcultmag.com. We're out. Peace.